let's go back then to our study. Um, this You've seen this a number of times. You're going to see it until we finish the book of Ephesians. But one of my thesis statements of my life, but certainly it's part of Paul, and it's certainly true here in Ephesians, is that sound doctrine produces godly living. And we've already studied the first three chapters, which are heavy uh, doctrine. Now we're kind of in the middle of the, the, the living section, godly living. And we're studying the section in chapter 4, 17 through 32, which we started last week, is the walk of holiness. As I have told you, and, and you, you know this, the key marker in terms of outlining the last three chapters is look for the word walk. And that tells you Paul is addressing a different subject, a different topic in sanctification, in godly living. And this is the walk of holiness. And as we studied this last week, I'm reviewing real quick. As we studied this last week, the process of sanctification is what Paul is talking about. And I like Philippians 2, 12, and 13, because it really orients us to what the process of sanctification is. Uh, as Paul says in Philippians 2, work out your salvation, the, the way that is, is laid, laid out for us, I think that means sanctification, with fear and trembling, because God is at work within you, both to will and to work, to do of his good pleasure. And so what we looked at last week, and I'm not going to review all of this again, but from 17 through 24, is Paul's instruction and challenge to the Ephesians to develop a strategy for holiness. And that strategy is itemized in verse 22, verse 23, and verse 24. And I don't mean to just kind of put a rigid template over this, but I think it's kind of simple, as profound as it is, as we are engaged in the process of walking with the Lord in holiness, we are to put off our old self, our old nature, their former end of life. He described that in verses 17 through 19. And that, that former end of life is corrupt and deceitful. And as I said last week, that, that little verb put off in the original language is used of, of a piece of clothing where you take off a piece of clothing getting ready for bed or getting up in the morning or whatever it is. It's intentional. It's willful. You're engaged in doing it. It's not passive. You're active in doing it. And so I would also characterize this as the old habits and old patterns of our life. And then secondly, we renew our minds. And we looked a little bit at Romans 12, where the renewing of your mind is through the Word of God. And that only makes sense, and it's discussed in a number of parts of the New Testament. But we need mind renewal. We need to think differently. We need to, a new, whole new way of thinking. And Philippians 4.8 is a wonderful verse on this, where Paul instructs us to think on these things. And he has a list of important words like what is, what is right, what is true, what is of integrity, what is pleasing to God. And then step three is you put on the new self. And he describes that as created in the likeness of God, true righteousness and holiness. And as you heard me say many, many times, the goal of sanctification from God's perspective is to become like Jesus. Galatians 4.19, Romans 8.29, 2 Corinthians 3.18, all itemize that for us. And so I just wanted to summarize that because that is the heart of this paragraph of a walk of holiness. But the Apostle Paul doesn't stop there, and I'm so glad he doesn't. He doesn't stop there. He gives us a series of illustrations, 
And so from verse 25 through the end of this chapter, he itemizes five specific illustrations. Why he chose these exactly, I don't know. It may just relate to specific things that were important in the Ephesian church, or maybe it's just a general understanding of these are the areas people really struggle with. Once they become a Christian, once they experience the grace of salvation, then they begin to work out their sanctification. Use that phrase from Philippians 2. And so let's look at each one of these examples. This is illustrative. It's, it's helping us to understand what he's talking about. But it also then helps us to understand this, this pattern of putting off the old, renewing our mind, putting on the new. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor. Now, let's just stop there. You see the language. Put away, put off, falsehood. Now, that has lots of meanings because there's a good translation, falsehood. But lying, misrepresenting things, it would have even the connotation of being deceptive, uh, deceiving in how we do things in life. And Paul says, in place of falsehood, what do you put? What do you put on? Truth. Oh, I see, Paul. So when you give us the template of put off the old, renew our mind, put on the new, an example would be lying and falsehood. and Yeah, and you replace that with truth. But then, then he says, speak the truth to your neighbor, for we're members of one another. Now, the only way to understand that if, is if you understand he is talking about in the church. We're members of one another. We're part of the body of Christ. So we treat one another as members of the body of Christ. We don't lie to each other. We don't misrepresent things. We're not intentionally deceptive. We're people of integrity, and we try to be as honest and as forthright as we possibly can be with people. And and so, okay, I understand that. And that, of course, corresponds to one of the important commandments in the Decalogue, uh, the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not lie. God is a God of truth. God is a God who who embraces truth, whose word is truth, and he expects his people to be people of truth. Now, the second illustration is a little more difficult. It deals with an emotion. And so in verse 26, be angry and do not sin. Now, please note the language. It's a I read from the ESV translation. That's a fine translation. Be angry, but do not sin. So it's, he's not saying, and God is not saying, do not be angry. God is an emotional being. God created us as emotional beings. And so anger is an emotion that humans express, that humans experience. So the instruction is, and it almost sounds a little confusing, but it isn't. Be angry and do not sin. And then he gives kind of a proverb to illustrate what he means. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And so let's think about this in a little bit of a different way. I'm going to experience anger. 
So what God is saying to me, what the Apostle Paul is saying to me, is don't let that anger control you. You control the anger. Remember, one of the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 22 and 23, as a matter of fact, that's the last one, fruit number nine, is self-control. Now, all of you, and I, I think I'm pretty accurate in saying this because you're all men, anger is something we all experience. And if you are a typical man, anger is one of those emotions that can get out of control somewhat quickly if we're not careful. And so Paul is saying to us, control your anger, and do not let the sun go down in your anger. I have done a lot of, I don't do much of that anymore, but I've done a lot of weddings uh, over the years. Uh, I don't even know how many, it's, it's many, many, many people. A lot of them were former students of mine, as well as people I've been involved in various churches with. But anyway, we always talk in premarital counseling about issues like this. It may be difficult for you to imagine right now as young newlyweds or about to be married, but one of the things you're going to wrestle with is you're going to be angry with one another. And I always say to them, never go to bed angry with one another. Somehow, somehow get it out, deal with it so that you can get a good night's rest. Because if you don't, you wake up the next morning still angry, you're still thinking about it, you're still dwelling on it. That's what Paul's saying. Don't let the anger control you. Deal with it. And then he adds, which is quite important, give no opportunity to the devil. And this, in one sense, that's almost common sense. It really is. But uncontrolled anger opens up a fantastic opportunity for the evil one. And I, again, I've dealt with some of this. I'm not a therapist, so never in a professional sense, but I've dealt with instances in a couple or in relationships where the anger has gotten out of control and there are really hard feelings, even bitter feelings. And I have never dealt with this uh, personally because I'm not a therapist, but it can lead to abuse. It can lead to, in, in a marriage, to abuse of a wife, uh, even abuse of children. But it can also lead to just interpersonal relationships with people duking it out. Or even some of the horrible things of taking out a gun and shooting someone. Now, hopefully that's not something Christians struggle with, but Paul is saying something here. If you let your anger control you, you are opening an opportunity for the evil one. And so he moves from the emotion to a proverb, don't let the anger go down, uh, don't let the sun go down your anger, to an important instruction. If you don't deal with it, it becomes a vulnerable point in your life that Satan can use. And so this to me, uh, especially uh, verse 26 and 27, is extremely appropriate it's very relevant for us today. It's very relevant for our culture. Uh, I, I mean, I'm 73 years old this year, and I've seen a lot evolve and develop in our country. But I honestly do not think I've ever seen a time in the United States where people are so angry. Angry at one another, angry at opponents. It's seeped into politics where you don't 
you don't just see your political enemy, a person, just someone disagrees with you, you want to destroy them. And I mean, that, that is that vociferous approach to life is what Paul is talking about here. That should not characterize a believer. And so bottom line, one of the major takeaways from this class this morning is if you've got a problem with anger that gets out of control, deal with it. And there are lots of professionals or lots of ways in which you can deal with it. This is an area that becomes very destructive. The third example he uses in verse 28. Now remember, we're looking for what you put off. We're looking for what you put on. Let the thief no longer steal, but let him labor doing honest work with his own hands, with his purpose, so that may have something to share with anyone in need. This I really find extremely helpful. The, th- this has always been a problem throughout the 5,000 plus years of recorded history. There are people who do not honor the sanctity of private property. They steal things, whether it's a wallet, whether it's a cup of coffee, or whether it's a car, or whether it's a bank account, through all of the things that are going on and all the issues of cybersecurity in our world today, that is always a problem. That is a mark of the human condition. But Paul says among believers, what do you take off? Your propensity to steal. What do you put in its place? You work. You labor. Honest work with this intended purpose, that you may become a giver so that you may have something to share with anyone in need. Well, that becomes a God-centered, Holy Spirit-empowered motivation. I take off my propensity to steal. I put on honest work with this godly purpose so that I can share what God has given me. That comes from the Bible. That comes from mind renewal. That comes from the transformation in our lives heart, mind, will. That's, they're the areas of transformation, heart, mind, and will. That will result in a transformed life. And so this is like stepping back and giving a 100,000-foot view. God's desire is that people who steal will replace that propensity with working with the ultimate goal sourced in God to share what God has blessed you. Who is our model for a giver? God. He gave his only begotten son. And so this is a, it's a wonderful, big picture, transformational illustration. You stop stealing, you begin to work so that you can share with those in need. The fourth example that he chooses to use is one that is addressed many times in the scripture. It's what comes out of our mouth. It's our speech. It's our talk. It's our words. Verse 29 reads, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, for only such as is good for building up and fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. hear." And then verse 30, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now, you'll note, that this particular illustration has several parts to it. And as 
verse 27, dealing with the second illustration about anger, this one has a much deeper motivation to it. As the deeper motivation for anger was don't allow the devil to have an opportunity in your life. This one relates to the Holy Spirit, to grieving the Holy Spirit. All right, corrupting talk, um, and that I read from the ESV translation, that's a nice translation, corrupting. Talk that corrupts. Talk that sows corruption and evil. Don't let that come out of your mouth. Instead, replace that. Put on talk that builds up. Uh, you could translate that as it's good for edifying, that which builds up people and fits the occasion, that it may give good grace to those who hear. We are people of grace. We represent grace. And even our talk communicates grace. And so we put off the talk that corrupts, the, the, the talk that, that sows seeds of destruction, and replace it with talk that edifies, builds up people. You know as well as I do, if you're, say, you're working with a child, six-year-old, an eight-year-old, nine-year-old, it, it, the kind of language and talk and words we use with children can either encourage them and build them up, or it can tear them down. I remember uh, a, a very uh, one of the, the very first students in our teacher ed program when I was in leadership of a Christian university. We uh, were able to get a teacher ed program approved by the state of Nebraska, and we launched a program. It became our largest undergraduate program. But one of our first students, I got to know him really well. He went to an inner city school in Omaha in fifth grade. The teacher said to him, you will never amount to anything. That, that so impacted that young kid. And he, he went on. He became a juvenile delinquent. He, uh, he actually ended up in, in, in prison as a young adult. But while he was in prison, he came to know Jesus Christ. And he is one of those guys, incredible transformation. He then got finished his, it, was, it wasn't a major felony, it was a misdemeanor, so he wasn't in, in very long, but he got out, and because he had come to know Christ, he got very tied into a church, and he began to experience what Paul's talking, instead of talk that corrupted and tore him down, talk that edified and built him up, encouraged him. And a businessman in his church saw the potential of this young guy and helped him go to school, and he ended up at Grace our teacher ed program. He finished our program, and his first job was in the same building where he went to elementary school. And the room where his class was, was next door to the woman that said to him, you will never amount to anything. I looked at that as God's grace, God's, the iron of how God works in a person's life. And the difference between talk that tears down and talk that is all difference in the world. But then Paul adds a theological reason. And this is something that, to me, is very poignant and very piercing. There's something about our speech, if it's corrupting and tearing down and shredding people, grieves the Holy Spirit. 
And there you see what I said when I addressed uh, the point of verse 26, the second illustration of anger. God is an emotional being, and he created us as emotional beings. To be grieved is emotion. And our corrupting talk can grieve God the Holy Spirit. And then he reminds us, taking us back to verse 14 of chapter 1. Remember, the Holy Spirit is the seal. We're sealed with the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption, which means the day we received our glorified resurrected bodies. And so this, this fourth illustration is quite penetrating because all of us struggle with the words we say. And Paul is reminding us, let your talk, your words be edifying, because this is an area that can grieve the Spirit. That should motivate us. The last illustration, and then I'll take questions you might have, has layers to it. Look at verse uh, 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away. Same language. That's what you take off, along with malice. Now, before we look at verse 32, Paul has, it's like a ladder here. It's like a ladder of vices. <laughs> but it deals, again, it deals with terms that have both an inward application and an outward application. Let's deal with each one of them. First of all, bitterness. Bitterness is, I'm sure, not a term that you're unfamiliar with, but bitterness is a little bit like a cancer. If we allow bitterness into our heart, it stays there and it metastasizes and grows and it is one of those things that produces unbelievable, almost unimaginable thoughts and sometimes very corrosive actions. And we got to deal with it. What do you put in its place? Verse 32, kindness, tenderheartedness, forgiveness. Now, I want to use a very personal illustration, if you don't mind, because this this verse, actually these two verses, 31 and 32, were transformational verses in my life. Let me illustrate. I came to know the Lord in 1972. And over, I've told you a little bit about this over the years here, but the next several years of my life were incredibly valuable. I was being mentored by a pastor back in Pennsylvania, and uh, he was an incredibly ind important individual in my life. God used him as my mentor in those years, helped me deal with a lot of the past junk of my life, sins of my life. And what, where I am today is due to that man, by the grace of God. But one of the things he helped me with was this issue of bitterness. My father, uh, who's with the Lord now, he died uh, almost three years ago. But dad was a typical German, Echmann, that's our name. Um, and very tough. His father, my grandfather, was extremely tough. I did not hear my father say I, he loved me until uh, 1975. Let me explain to you what happened. My dad, he was very tough. My dad um, wasn't terribly kind. He didn't come to know the Lord till quite a bit later in his life. 
Uh, he was very tough, very demanding. He would say things. He would do things uh, that I remember. Uh, and it was very hard. And I really rebelled against my dad. I had enormous bitterness in my heart for my father. And when I came to the Lord, my, my, my mentor was encouraging me, Jim, you got to deal with that. And you have to look at this passage. And I read this over and over and over and over again. And I realized I must put off this bitterness and I must substitute forgiveness. I must forgive my dad. And so um, I, we were in, in Allentown, Bethlehem, Eastern area, north of where my parents lived, about 80, 90 miles. And I was in graduate school, finished that. I was teaching, and, and I just called my dad. And I said, Dad, a lot's happened in my life. I, I want to talk to you. We're coming down this weekend to visit. Can you and I get some alone time? So we did. And I began to lay out for my dad a number of the things that I dealt with. And I said, Dad, there are some things I'm very bitter about. But I said, Dad, I want you to understand that because of what Jesus has done in my life, I really forgive you. And I am, I am committed to no longer letting this bind me. That's when I saw my father cry. I never saw my dad cry. And it was a result of that meeting that my dad said he loved me. And then from then until my dad died three years ago. Every time I saw my father, we hugged. I never did that. All I'm saying to you, and that's all I'm going to do in this trend, it's very transparent, and it may have made you a little uncomfortable, but this, to me, this verse, these two verses have enormous meaning to my life, because I really carried enormous bitterness toward my father. I don't anymore. And it was this verse, as it worked itself out in my life, where I was able to forgive my dad and then express and experience kindness and tenderheartedness that I never experienced in my entire life with my father. This works. <laughs> this was transformation of my life. And so those other words like wrath, that's the outward explosion of bitterness Anger is that inner emotion which can lead to clamor, disruptive interpersonal relationships, slander, where you're slandering people with your mouth, and then malice, where it's a malicious spirit, where you are, you are planning and scheming to hurt that person. So you can see all of those terms are related to one another. It's what's going on inside of us that leads to outward expressions, almost explosive expressions in some case, in some cases. And so again, verse 31 and 32 for me are very powerful, but verse 31 and 32 are extremely important in interpersonal relationships. This can be the case in husband and wife relationships, parent-child relationships, workplace relationships, neighbor relationships. And Paul says, you take these things off as your mind is renewed and you replace them as kindness with kindness, tenderheartedness, and forgiveness. And the standard, look at the end of the verse, 32. The standard is as God in Christ forgave you. Why do we forgive as God in Christ forgave us? God has every right to be angry and bitter with me 
but he's chosen to offer forgiveness through Jesus Christ. And so that becomes our standard. And so this, this whole paragraph from verse 17 through verse 32, which we've now completed, is, is I think, one of the most significant passages in the Bible, all of the Bible, for you and me to really understand the process of sanctification and to really understand applicationally how this can be transformational in our lives. Falsehood, anger, stealing, corrupting talk, and the emotions of bitterness, anger, wrath, etc. They all can be self-destructive, but they can be replaced as we renew our minds through the Word of God with transformational actions in both attitudes, emotions, and actions. Because God is at work within us, both to will and to do of his good pleasure, Philippians 2, 13. All right, we've spent almost two class sessions on this paragraph. I want to leave it, but I want to give you an opportunity to ask any questions or respond to anything I've said. Any comments or questions before we leave this paragraph? Yeah, Jim, I guess I have one that we're talking about things that are destructive to our inner being and to our spirit. Um, And you mentioned how you dealt with it, and um, we can pray and we can be in the Bible, and and the Holy Spirit uh, can, if we're really seeking him, can be our helpmate, I guess in that way a helper, to maybe do you think that this was instrumental in your life? I know um, all of us can relate to that example uh, in some way. Um, But what are the tools to retool our lives in dealing with these feelings? That's my question. Well, um, there's an awful lot there. I mean, you mentioned all the different resources God gives us. But, I mean, what what is really important, I think, and this is where I think it is so valuable for us as men particularly. And that's I'm speaking as men because there aren't women involved in this class that I teach. But um, men sometimes have a level of stubbornness. Um, and a, and a hard heartedness and a stiff neck approach to things that we just don't want to do what God is clearly wanting us to do. And that's why, in addition to God's word, which we renew our mind, that's what the passage has taught us through God's word and through the growing intimate relationship we have with God, which is often manifested by prayer where we're talking to God conversationally as well as very specifically. But, and then the, the, the Holy Spirit who indwells us and is you know, our, our edifier, he's our teacher, he's our guide, all those things at John 16. But some, you know, still, with all of those things, that we still have to act. We still have to do it. And sometimes we don't want to do it. We don't want to take that step of obedience. And that's where I think the fourth resource can be other Christians. 
what really was instrumental in my life in those critical years from 72 to about 76 was Mel, my, my pastor friend. I played tennis with him. That's where I first met him. He's the one that directed me to the Lord. I mean, it, his, his ministry was incredible in my life. It was just, it was coincidental that we met, but it wasn't really, it was providential. And he was the one who kept pushing me, Jim, you must do this. God will honor what you're going to do, but you must do this. And so sometimes we know what we need to do, but we don't want to do it. And it can be an encouragement and the, if I can put it this way, the forceful determination of someone who cares for us and cares about us that pushes us to where we do it. I mean, I have, he, Mel died a couple of years ago. He, he retired down in Florida, but I kept in touch with him. He was such an incredibly important man in my life. And one of the reasons he was incredibly important was he had the determination to force me to do what he knew I needed to do according to God's word in a lot of different areas of my life. I thank the Lord for him. And so that's how I would answer your question. In, in a very personal way. Thank you. You have a copy of this chart in your notes. I have a question. Oh, uh, yes. I'm sorry. Go ahead. It's really not a question. I just wanted to uh, make the observation that I I, I looked at this uh, and even took some notes prior to you going over that this morning. Very good. And, uh, and uh, that's the clearest instructions that I've found on how to live the way that I believe that God would want me to live. I mean, it just tells us what to do. It's with clear-cut instructions. And, uh, and if we can do it, uh, you know, I'm looking forward to <laughs> the results of it. <laughs> well, I mean, Woody, that's a great comment. I mean, you're right. It is so clear here. Verse 17 through 30, it isn't, it is ambiguous. It doesn't lack clarity. It's very clear what we're supposed to do. But always remembering that is that process. And so this little chart that you have in front of, you have a copy of this in your notes on page nine, is, is just a way to look at these illustrations using the lay aside, put on, and then the reason that Paul gives us. And it's just, this is really helpful to us. It really is. Because this is, I, I don't know what else to use, but it's like, I, I love this phrase and I use it a lot. This is our strategy for holiness. We, we know the areas that we've got, the, the habits and patterns of sin in our life that we need to get rid of. We renew our mind. We're in God's word and all the things we've been talking about, things I responded to in answering Fred's question. But then, then I, I put on the new, the things that characterize my new life in Christ. And it's that, it's that constant process of transformation where God is encouraging us to deal with things, to face things, and to, to walk in obedience and to do it. As I responded a couple moments ago, I knew what I had to do, but I didn't want to, I'm talking about that illustration with my father, but I didn't want to do it. But I'm telling you, I cannot explain to you how absolutely freeing and liberating that was for me. 
that was a burden that was off my shoulders and it, it so transformed my relationship with my father. And so the, that was in, like I said, it was about 1974. And then the, the rest of my dad's life, because dad died, as I said, almost three years ago. But how that transformed our relationship. Because those first decades were terrible. I had a terrible relationship with my dad. But it shows what Christ can do and the transformation he can bring. And this, this passage gives us kind of the, the strategy. This, this is how you go about doing it. Again, with all the resources, Holy Spirit, God's word, loving friends who care about us, etc., all that are a part of this process of transforming us into the image of Jesus. It's a very powerful passage. I honestly, I think it's one of the most powerful passages in the Bible in giving focus to what transformation looks like, what that process of transformation looks like. Hey, Jim, this is Bill. What I think we really have to do, though, is when you go from left to right, is you have to really forgive. Yes. You have to do it. You can't just say, well, I forgive you the next week if you still have the same issue. <laughs> you haven't really done it. You have to do your part. That's right, Bill. You're absolutely right. And it is, it's once you have done that, you've asked for and received or whatever the exact issue is, forgiveness, then it's done. And I am not going to hold a grudge anymore. I'm not going to allow that bitterness to, to fester in my soul and my heart. It, it, no, it, it's done. And it's, I forgive, but no, 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 you forgive. And again, I think many times we have, but, and we yeah, keep that's right. That's right. Time. That's right. And that's part of, that's part of the human condition. But it is, and that's why Paul adds that, I believe, as God in Christ Jesus has forgiven you, you forgive. Uh, there's, a, there's a little passage in, in the Psalms, I forget which Psalm it is off the top of my head, but where it says that God forgives and buries our sins in the deepest part of the sea. If I understand uh, on planet Earth, the deepest part of the, the, any of the oceans is, is in the Pacific, uh, to the west of, uh, of uh, or to the east of, of Japan. It's, I don't know how many miles down. Corey Tenboom, I don't know if you know who she is. She's been with the Lord a long time, but she uh, had been in a Nazi concentration camp, uh, come to know the Lord, and just an incredible story. But she used to say, God buries our sins and forgives us and puts a sign over the deepest part of the sea, no fishing. And I like that. So that we 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 forgive, we're forgiven, no fishing. We don't keep stirring it up. It's taken care of. And that that is so, and though I appreciate you saying that, that's so instrumental in growing from this. We forgive and now it's over. There are no buts. There's no grudge. There's no residue. It's it's taken care of. And the, again, the model for that is God in Christ has forgiven you. All right. What time is it here? Oh, my goodness. Uh, we have about 10 minutes or so. Again, this chart you have, let's move uh, on then. I don't think there are any more questions. If there are, please interject. But here again, uh, you'll see this uh, from the remaining part of our study of, uh, of Ephesians. Sound doctrine produces godly living. We're going to now move to the third category, the third area where he uses the term walk, and it's the walk of love. Now, we're, we'll not get all this finished, but we can begin <clears throat> We can begin. 
the passage. Therefore, be imitators of God. Now, uh, let's let's think about that for just a minute before we go on. Why why does he have therefore? <laughs> Remember, this was originally a letter. There weren't chapters. There weren't verses. Those were added later for study purposes. So, therefore, be imitators of God. It takes you to the very last phrase of verse 32 of chapter 4. As God in Christ forgiven you. Therefore, be imitators of God. So, as God has forgiven us in Christ, we should imitate God. And that aspect of forgiveness is the bridge to love, which is what he's going to be talking about in this paragraph. Therefore, be imitators of God. And by the way, that, that's a wonderful translation. But the, the Greek word is mimic. And you all know what that means, mimic God, as beloved children. And I put, it's appositional, I put a little equal sign there, because this, this adds a dimension to you and I imitating God. We're his beloved child. We're in his family. Now think about that for a minute. We're mimicking our dad. We're imitating our dad. Now, spiritually speaking, we're in the family of God when we put our faith in Christ. God now is our Heavenly Father. We are His children. So we mimic, we imitate our dad. All of you, I, I don't know, most of you, I don't know anything about your families, but I'm assuming a lot of you have children and so on, or grandchildren or whatever. And isn't it interesting how our kids, when they were young, would mimic us? I have, uh, Peggy had took hosts, hosts, and hosts of pictures. And the other week, she got a bunch of them out. She was doing something uh, for a, a thing she wanted to hang one of the walls. But anyway, and she brought out a whole bunch of pictures when the kids were real. And how many times they're imitating things I was doing. And she has one picture. I was working on our car at that time, and I was underneath the car. And she has a little photograph of Jonathan with his bike. He's underneath. He propped his bike up on two blocks of wood. He's in under that that little bike, playing around with it. He didn't know what he was doing, but what is he doing? He's mimicking me. And just think of that. And what what Paul is saying here is, we should mimic our heavenly Father, as He forgave us in Christ. We should forgive and walk in love. I want to talk about what that means in a minute, but notice how he's stringing these things together. He is Paul. Notice how he's stringing these things together in his instruction to us. As the beloved children of God, mimic him and walk in love. And so he's moving from the forgiveness, verse 32, with the instruction, mimic God because you're his child, you're in his family, he's your heavenly father, and walk in love. And then again, it's appositional. Look, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And I'll, I'll deal with that in just a minute. And so you could, you could actually translate this because that word and that begins verse, uh, verse 2 is epexegetical. Aren't you glad I told you that? It's, a, it's an epexegetical use of the word kai, but you could translate that as beloved children, 
imitate your, your imitate God as your beloved children. That is walk in love. That's the idea. That mimicking God is not only forgiving, but it's walking in love. And what's the standard of that? As Christ loved us. What was the evidence of his love for us? He gave himself up for us. And the word for there, that preposition, is substitution in our place. It's referring to his death on the cross. And so the measure of God's love for us is Christ loving us and giving himself in our place. And so that becomes the measure of love. And the word, everybody knows that Greek word, it's agape. Most Christians have heard of that term, but it's that self-sacrificial, other-centered love. And the standard for that is Jesus' love for us in giving himself up for us on the cross. And then he adds something which is a little curious, because this is the language of the Greek, excuse me, this is the language of the Jewish sacrifices that you see in the burnt offerings, in the sin offerings, in Leviticus. It's a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now, when you go back and, and read, and I know it's hard to read that and study that, but when you read those chap early chapters in the book of Leviticus, where you see the various offerings and sacrifices, you often see that. This is a sweet aroma to God. This is a fragrant. What does that mean? It's pleasing to him. And so, as Christ loved us and gave himself for us, it was a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This was pleasing to God, the Father, because that's what the redemptive program is all about. Someone had to die and pay the price for sin. Jesus Christ did that, and it was pleasing to the Father. Another way of saying that is it was acceptable by the Father. Now, Paul doesn't deal with it here, but let me add this. How do we know it was acceptable to the Father? Because he raised his son from the dead. That's how we know it was acceptable. And so I just love the grammar of this. I love how Paul connects this to forgiveness. Therefore, be imitators of God as the beloved children. That is, walk in love. And our standard is Christ. That's, it's a wonderful, the language of this just flows very smoothly. So what he does now in the paragraph we're studying, 1 through 6 of chapter 5, is he deals with the negatives. This is not what love is. And so you see that in verse 3, but in contrast, to the walk that God is calling us to, a walk of agape, with the standard being Jesus. But these three things, sexual immorality, all kinds of impurity, or covetousness, must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. This is, it's, it's actually quite profound because what he does is, in contrast, he says, these things aren't loving. What is agape? Other-centered, self-sacrificial, serving love. These things are not agape, self-sacrificing, 
other-centered, serving love. First, sexual immorality. Now, the word for sexual immorality there is porneia. You might recognize that. We get our word pornography from that. But porneia in the original Greek language is a very, very broad term. It can involve almost any sexual vice you can think of. And so what's he getting at? Why does he bring that up? Because sexual immorality is probably one of the most powerful illustrations that you can think of, of real, true, selfish, self-indulgent, self-centered, opposite of love living. You are living for yourself. You objectify women. They become an instrument. They become an object that is all about you. That's not the love of marriage. That's not the love of sexual intimacy, where you give yourself to one another. Sexual immorality is all about you. And, and this is the language that is not unfamiliar to us today at all, where the sexual dimension of life is just all about you, satisfying yourself, satisfying that need. And so you exploit, you oppress, you use, you objectify women or children, if it's pedophilia, or animals, if it's bestiality. I mean, these are horrible things to even talk about. And listen, in the Greco-Roman world to which Paul was writing, this was a grossly sexually immoral culture. And all of the things I just mentioned, and you add to it all of the aspects of human sexuality today that relate to homosexuality and lesbianism and, and bisexuality, and trans, I mean, all of those things that are just absolutely inundating our culture would fit in that word, porneia. Because this is the epitome of self-centeredness, self-indulgence. It is the precise opposite of agape. And so I think that's why he uses it as the beginning. If there's anything that stands opposed to agape, the love that he is talking about in this walk, it's in the sexual dimension of life. Okay, now are you with me on that? Yeah, I think Woody I has think, a question. I think yeah, Woody please. has a question for you. Yes, please. Woody, you get your hand up. I didn't mean to. I, I think I said <laughs> earlier. Okay. Okay. You're, you're all right then, Woody? Yes. Thank you. All right. And then let, let me comment on the second one. Then we'll have to pick up with this next week. And he adds, all, I would prefer to translate that, every kind of impurity, everything that morally defiles. Now, what you have to do here with this term is, is now go outside of sexual issues all kinds of impurity. This is all of the things in life that defile. Issues of integrity, issues of financial management, issues of, of how you treat one another. It's a huge category. It's, it, I like to think of it this way. Every kind of impurity, moral defilement, that, that is the opposite 
of the love that God wants to characterize human relationships, where we serve one another, where we care for one another, where we bear one another's burdens, all kinds of impurity. Again, it's selfish, self-centered, self-indulgent living, where everything is about me. Everything is about, everything is focused, everything revolves around me. And so everybody exists for me. Everything is about me. Well, you and I don't have to think very, very, very much about, oh my goodness, that's very much a part of our culture. Personal autonomy is the chief value of American culture right now. It's all about me. And so Paul is saying, not only the sexual dimension of life, but in all of the things that can defile us. It's when we have the perspective, and this is very much a part of the Greco-Roman world, that everything revolves around us, that everything's about us. And, and, and that, becomes, that becomes almost like a cancer in our lives. And that's what Paul is saying. That's not love. Well, it's now past a quarter of, I'm going to have to quit because I have another appointment a quarter after, so I'm going to have to end. So we'll pick up with this next week. We just got started on it, but this is another powerful par uh, paragraph. I have a chart that, um, that was sent to you a little earlier. The chart looks like this, because I want to deal with this and unpack this, but we'll get all to that next week. All right, I'm going to pray and I'm going to let you go. Father, we've had a good hour uh, together. I love that passage in 17 through 32 in, in chapter 4. I hope it was helpful to the men. I appreciate their questions and comments. It is one of those passages that we can go back to again and again and again to remind us. This is the pattern. This is the strategy. This is how we live our lives to the glory of God. Help us to be men that are deeply convicted about the seriousness of the transformation process of sanctification. We're allowing you, through the energizing power of the Holy Spirit, through the encouragement of others, through your word and our intimacy with you in prayer, to put off the old. We're getting rid of those things. The word of God is helping us through our minds, and we are putting on the new, the new habits, the new patterns of living that are the center of your grace and your love and your mercy in our lives. We represent you, Lord. We want to represent you well. As one of the men said this morning in the one class, we have a new jersey we wear. We're on God's team. We represent him. And may that be the case for each one of us. I pray for each one of these men. You know their needs. You know their areas of struggle. You know them better than I do because we know one thing. We never pray to give you information you are omniscient. You have the information. It's that relationship with you. So I commit these men to you that they may be strong men of faith to represent you well in this world. We pray in Christ's name. All right, men, we'll see you next week. Thanks, Jim. Thanks. Jim. Have a good day. You too. Bye-bye.